well-mounted cabinets, wipe clean work surface, fridge, oven, hob, sink, maybe a table. Often not. Somehow we've ended up with this unspoken agreement that a kitchen isn't a kitchen, unless it looks like this. I've been thinking a lot about kitchens over the past four years. Since I started Lekker in 2016, I've spent a lot more time than I did previously in other people's kitchens. Before then, it had never really occurred to me how similar they all are. We have different lives, different tastes, different needs. We cook different foods. Why don't we have different kitchens? You go in the back door. It's a really small kitchen. It's tiny. It's like a tiny little box. Gas hob. So you have the stove. Worktop. Counter. Sink. A small fridge. Underneath the draining board was the gas fridge. If more than one person's in there, everyone starts to get a bit flustered. That's the general vibe. This is Kitchens, a podcast series by Lekker about the most important room in the home. I'm Lucy Dearlove. They left out any element of human emotion and uh, emotional intelligence and in what people needed from kitchens. This kitchen is not, it's not suitable for me. It doesn't enable me to cook. Kitchens are more clones of each other than living rooms or bedrooms are. Why, why is that? Episode 1. Trophy Cabinets. The 20th century was a period where the kitchen went through an unprecedented amount of accelerated dramatic change, which made sense because it was a period of accelerated dramatic change for housing in general. I um, bought a house in 1995 that was a time capsule, a house built in 1934, never changed. This is Professor Deborah Sugg-Ryan. Deborah's a design historian and she's particularly interested in the history of the home and especially the kitchen. What was really interesting about that house is originally it just had two reception rooms and the rear reception room, I mean, this is the the point where ranges start going out of fashion, so it probably would have had a gas cooker, but it had a small kitchen extension that had been built in the 1940s. And when we moved in to the house, all it had in that small kitchen at the back was a big Belfast sink, an enamel-topped table and a space where you could see on the wall, because the wall was filthy, had stood a kitchen cabinet and a small gas cooker. And that is how I lived in that house for a long time. Even this one really personal example tells us a lot about the changes in 20th century housing. It tells us that even well into the 1930s, new homes were being constructed without a purpose-built kitchen just the two reception rooms, as Deborah describes. But it also tells us that it wasn't long before a separate kitchen felt necessary to the people who lived there. And so that was added on to keep up with the rapid change that was going on. And it also tells us about an extremely popular predecessor to the fitted kitchen that we know so well. 
There are some real differences with what happens in the UK with the development of kitchens in the 20th century to the rest of Europe and other countries like the United States in particular. And the main difference in the UK is that the fitted kitchen is adopted much, much later than it is in other European countries and in the USA. What we have instead in Britain is the adoption of what was usually called the kitchen cabinet, which had its origins in the American Hoosier cabinet. And fitted kitchens don't really become commonplace until the 1960s in Britain. They're available from the 1930s, but they just don't take off in the same way that they do in other countries. Kitchen cabinets were available in various materials. So they were usually made of very nice wood. You could get oak ones and they would have lots of very nice enamelling on them as well. There was kind of a familiarity about them that reminded people of kitchen furniture that they were used to. So if you think of a traditional kitchen dresser, it's a bit like the kitchen dresser, but without open shelves. So you'll have cupboards at the bottom But then they were technologically advanced for the era. And typically, one of the cupboards will be a meat safe, will be lined with tin or lead to keep the meat cool. And they incorporated aspects of the fitted kitchen that we really take for granted today, but in very compact early form. And you will have a work surface that you can pull out, and that is normally enamelled. But they also had features that haven't really lasted the duration, sadly. What you have on the shelves are labelled storage jars for things like sugar, the amazing flower hopper, this funnel-shaped thing that you put your flower in and it can dispense flour into your mixing bowl because this is the era where people are baking, baking their own bread often. The kitchen cabinet really takes hold after the First World War. It's available in Britain from 1919, developed by G.E.W. Crow, who was a Canadian serviceman who came over to Britain in the First World War. And he starts importing these Hoosier-type cabinets from Canada and then develops his own business called Easy Work, manufacturing them in the UK. And they soon become available in lots of kitchen companies and names actually we're really familiar with now like Hygiena started off developing kitchen cabinets and they just take hold. So why were they so popular? Well I think one of the things that we have to remember is that housing conditions were often pretty cramped. So if you think of an ordinary working person and the kinds of choices they had available, if you were living in a house of multiple occupation where you had to have a kind of makeshift kitchen in a room and you're not necessarily going to put in plumbing in that room, then a kitchen cabinet is like a whole kitchen in a cupboard. Described in adverts as being designed to lighten the housewife's burden and even the housewife's mecca, the kitchen cabinet was an early response in Britain to some of the conversations going on elsewhere in the world at the time about efficiency in the home. 
And it had the advantage that it fitted into all different types of housing. And during the interwar period, the cramped homes that Deborah mentioned were being targeted in a programme of slum clearance, and there was a huge nationwide house-building effort. This was the period during which the idea of Britain as a nation of homeowners became established. Writes Deborah in her book, Ideal Homes, Uncovering the History and Design of the Interwar House. Almost three million homes were built for private sale during this time. And this was also the beginning of what John Bowson, author of Municipal Dreams, has called the first great age of council house building. Although this had begun in the previous century, it hadn't been done on anything like this scale before. Construction of over one million so-called homes fit for heroes was underway. So when you start getting the development of social housing and that starts setting out specifications for the house and again, it's usually the kitchen cabinet that is in that social housing, not the fitted kitchen. The term kitchen actually is really interesting. There's a, there's a fantastic mass observation report done to, during the Second World War on inquiry into people's homes. And one of the things they discuss is the way in which the word kitchen means different things. So often what people will have is a small room at the back of the house with a sink where they're doing all the dirty work of the kitchen, where they're preparing vegetables, where they are doing the washing up afterwards. And if they're doing their laundry at home, they're doing their laundry in there. And they are living and cooking in a room that they probably call the living room. It was an influential government report composed by the Tudor Walters Committee, published in 1918, that initially set standards for social housing in the following Housing Acts. Judah Walters was a Liberal MP who was heavily influenced by the Garden City movement and was a strong believer in spacious, low-density housing developments. The report was a reaction to how poor housing in cities at the time was affecting people's health. It stipulated three rooms up and down stairs and a larder and bathroom were essential. The report also made specific recommendations about where the cooking would be done in different styles of new homes. There were various blueprints for this depending on the type of housing, but generally this specified a scullery separate to the living room for cooking and washing up, the dirty work that Deborah mentions. So there are some real changes into this kind of shift into the kitchen as the place where you just cook, where it's more compact, where you don't sit and eat, because this sort of kitchen living arrangement that of course is so desirable now with open plan, was actually seen as a much more working class thing. So you start getting that separation of cooking and dining. It's really interesting. So the kitchen cabinet you can see is quite a flexible bit of furniture because it it can sit in this living room with the range, with an armchair, with the kitchen table. Or as you start moving into a smaller, more dedicated kitchen space, it can move in there. Before 1900 in Britain, Mrs Beaton was one of the most highly regarded authorities on domestic matters. Her book of household management was published in 1861 and it sold 60,000 copies in its first year. 
In it, she made reference to the desired sufficient remoteness of the kitchen from the rest of the house, so that members of the family, visitors or guests of the family may not perceive the odour incidental to cooking or hear the noise of culinary operations. So it's hardly surprising that, as the country became more prosperous and home ownership started to go up, there was a push for lower income households to leave behind their shared kitchen and living spaces and shut the smells and sounds of cooking away in its own separate room. The early 20th century marked the first time in Britain's history that owner-occupation was both aspirational and actually attainable. And so there was a related rise in interest in household consumer goods and whole industries rose up around this. The thing that really got me into design in the kitchen was I catalogued photo albums documenting the ideal home exhibition. As suggested from its title, Deborah's book Ideal Homes takes as its starting point the Ideal Home Exhibition, which was founded in 1908, originally as a marketing event for the Daily Mail. And it's still going today, though it has been cancelled for the past couple of years due to the pandemic. In the tradition of events like the Great Exhibition of the Victorian Era, it was this huge showcase of the latest innovations, products and future ideas for the home. And it came at a really crucial time for this shift in identity from a nation of renters to a nation of homeowners. In 1914, there was 10% owner occupation, but by 1938, this had already risen to 32%. One of the, the kind of iconic things at the exhibition are the show homes and people queue to go around the show homes. And of course, the room they're usually the most interested in is the kitchen. A kitchen is a space in a house that changes a lot. It is also the place as well that people experience new technologies and a kind of sense of modernity. We sometimes get a very false view of how people live and the history of design in particular through television dramas. They usually have fitted kitchens far too quickly. What the Ideal Home Exhibition does is gives you a kind of window into popular taste, into how people actually lived, but also about their aspirations as well. When we consider the history of the kitchen and its design and architecture, it's really important to also think about what people were cooking and what their aspirations around food and cooking were at the time. And where better to look than cookbooks? The academic Nicola Humble, who wrote a history of cookbooks in Britain called Culinary Pleasures, draws attention to the national relief at the end of the First World War, leading to what was essentially a prioritising of pleasure and a resulting interest in the domestic, and cooking especially. She describes a veritable barrage of domestic literature addressed to middle-class women published in the interwar period. One of the writers who emerged around this time, Ambrose Heath, who wrote over 70 books about food from the 1930s to the 1960s, identified a new young suburban class who were looking for guidance on how to live their new lifestyle. They were first-generation homeowners and were likely never to have lived anywhere with gleaming bathrooms and kitchens. So they turned to cookbooks, as well as the growing mass media and events like Ideal Home Exhibition for guidance. 
this was a complicated situation, which I'm not going to unpack fully here, but what's widely known as the servant problem was really impactful too. For various reasons over the beginning of the early 20th century, households who had previously been able to employ a full staff were no longer able to do so. And so there's definitely an element of middle-class women being quite sensitively addressed in this new wave of cookbooks as well. Books like Catherine Ives's When the Cook is Away, published in 1928, allowed a household staff situation to remain ambiguous, but also provided a useful resource for middle and upper class women who had never had to cook extensively for their families before. And there was definitely a framing of food planning and preparation as, as Nicola Humble puts it, a mode of self-display and self-improvement far too interesting to be left to servants, even if there were any to be had. rapid change in and around the cooking and living situation in Britain slowed to a halt around the Second World War. There was a shortage of both material and labour for construction, and rationing meant that there was very little opportunity for aspirational cooking. Post-war though, house building took on even greater urgency. On top of the country's previous housing concerns, 475,000 homes had been destroyed in the Blitz. And rationing continued into the 50s. So it was in the 60s and 70s when things really started to change for aspiration in the kitchen. And there's a number of factors in this change that we can definitely count. One was the Parker Morris Report, which was released in 1961. The minimum space standards for housing laid out in the report became mandatory for all new town housing in 1967 and all council housing in 1969, and they stayed so until 1980. The room under the greatest scrutiny in the report was undoubtedly the kitchen. It noted that in preparing food, most moves took place between sink and cooker and work surface and cooker, rather than between food stores and work surface. So a kitchen should be arranged accordingly to make sense of that work pattern. It also stated a preference for L-shaped, U-shaped or straight-line galley kitchens. And it noted that only 5% of homes they'd studied for the report already had an arrangement like this. I'm going to go into more detail about this in the next episode, but many specifics in this section of the report made direct reference to work done in various parts of the world from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century on design of the labour-saving kitchen, which had a lasting influence on the fitted kitchen as we know it today. It had become a real priority to reduce the drudgery of household labour for women. But there were other factors too. There were shifts in manufacturing and retailing that contributed to the growth of the kitchen industry being possible. A history of the furniture company MFI, which was established in 1963, describes how the company's early suppliers were largely located outside of the UK. 
Importing the goods that they sold allowed them to meet demand and keep prices low, as Britain did not produce enough beech, the wood used for inexpensive timber, on its own. And this effort to keep prices low meant that people who would never have been able to afford bespoke, craftsman-made cabinetry could buy the mass-produced furniture at prices that worked for them. At some point over the mid to late 20th century, aspirations in the kitchen shifted from efficiency and function to style and aesthetics. I know I said at the start of the episode that many of our kitchens look the same, and that's true in function and concept. But it's also true that not all fitted kitchens are created equal. In an essay called Not Just for Cooking Anymore, Emily Contois, a professor at the University of Tulsa, writes, Once a space for cooking alone, the trophy kitchen now takes on a new meaning that is often disassociated from cooking and food preparation. As function has become secondary, status has become primary, and the kitchen has emerged as a potent status symbol among both middle and upper class demographics. Emily credits the idea of a trophy kitchen in the specific way we understand it to MTV Cribs in the 90s. Think 50 Cent in his mansion with six kitchens, most of them unused. And she also gives a nod to the director Nancy Myers and the beautiful, bright, big kitchens in her films like Something's Gotta Give. I've been thinking about it though, and I think in the UK when it comes to trophy kitchens, the lineage can be traced to a generation of cooks who emerged on our screens and on our kitchen bookshelves in the 90s, particularly Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson. The approach of these cooks and food writers was in many ways to democratise and to demystify home cooking, with the attention to make it both attainable and pleasurable. And their early TV series served to emphasise their relatability. The first ever episode of How to Eat showed Nigella dropping off her son late to nursery and then some casual behind the scenes of her getting her makeup touched up. But her kitchen is much less down to earth. Spacious, furnished with a kitchen island and professional grade equipment hanging from the ceiling. Another interesting addition to the burgeoning TV chef category of this time was Nigel Slater. In Culinary Pleasures, Nicola Humble talks about Nigel Slater being the successor to Ambrose Heath in recognising a new generation of young people who had experienced some sort of shift in identity quite rapidly and were living away from home for the first time without certain basic culinary skills that previous generations had taken for granted. Real fast food, for example, is a key example of a shift away from the glamour and excess of the restaurant-led Nouvelle Cuisine cookbooks in the 1980s. Nigel even writes in it, I have a small kitchen. It has probably less room than most larders. Cupboard space is at a premium, and large bottles of olive oil and vinegar tend to migrate to the already cluttered work surfaces. Rolling out pastry or making bread, demands that everything be relocated to the floor. This is not my dream kitchen. I found it really interesting to reflect on this idea 20, 25 years later, when for me now, Nigel Slater represents an unattainable aspiration in terms of food and kitchens. For me, as much as his name conjures up 
simple, delicious, wholesome food. It also conjures up images of Japanese ceramics racked up tastefully in his stunning multi-million pound London townhouse. Like, of course Nigel Slater would write an accessible recipe book when his own kitchen left much to be desired. But contrast what he wrote in Real Fast Food with the introduction to the first Kitchen Diaries book, published in 2005, where he acknowledges his much-improved kitchen. My kitchen is not large, but a trio of skylights and the fact that the doors open up to the garden make it a hugely pleasurable place in which to cook. It has no fancy cookers, no battery of expensive equipment, yet it has been thoughtfully and intelligently designed. The space works perfectly. Good kitchens are not about size, they are about ergonomics and light. Financially, socially, professionally, he's clearly in a very different place. So it makes sense that his writing would shift accordingly. He's experienced a change in his personal circumstances. And this can just completely change how a writer is perceived by the reader. Like, as I grew up, like, reading Nigel Slater and Nigella Lawson, and they were my kind of reference points, and that's what I thought food writing was. And that's not to have a go at them, because I think they they inhabit the specific bubbles that they do, and I still really, really enjoy their recipes and their writing. But I thought that's all that there was. I thought that was the only option for how a cookbook could look and how it would function, and I thought that that presented a kind of vision of normality that I should be aspiring to as well, even though it wasn't my normal at all. Ruby Tando is a food writer. She's the author of four books, including Eat Up and the forthcoming Cook As You Are. She's one of my very favourite food writers, and one of the things that I love most about her work is her inclusive and non-aspirational approach to recipes and food, which has been strongly influenced by her personal experiences of cooking and of kitchens. There were definitely examples of other kind of food writers that I grew up with. I think my mum used to cook loads from uh, the Moosewood cookbooks, you know, the, the illustrated ones. They're very cute. And like Rose Elliott, like vegetarian cookbooks and stuff, you know, the paperbacks that you used to be able to get for, you know, a couple of quid and they're like really ratty and yellow and but so functional. And because they're not presenting a specific vision of how the dishes will look and what kind of kitchen they're made in or what dishes they're served on or anything like that, it actually really opens you up to, I don't know, to the possibility of what might this look like when I make it? What might this look like for me and how might this fit into my kitchen? For me, there's a few things that make a cookbook aspirational. It could be the writing itself, talking of popping down to the farmer's market for fresh figs on a weekday morning, or the assumption that a reader has endless space and an arsenal of expensive kitchen gadgets to work with. Often, though, it's the visual aspects to a cookbook that make it more aspirational. Even when the text assures readers that they don't need a Thermomix or an ice cream maker, the photos tell a very different story. And this kitchen often goes unacknowledged in recipe books. I mean, credit to Nigel Slater for talking about his own kitchens so openly and, you know, explicitly. It's often purely a stage, a set. But unspoken, it creates this assumption on some level that the reader too has a life where a beautiful kitchen like this is attainable. And even Ruby herself, a couple of cookbooks into her career, found herself in this situation. Then the second one was filmed in a home. Uh, sorry, photographed rather, in a home. And it was a beautiful home. It wasn't my home, though. And, and you kind of... 
I don't know. It, it does change the way that you you see your recipes. Like I really, really enjoyed seeing my recipes in such a beautiful setting, and it's so like minimalist that home, and it's just so much light and stuff like that. But then I found that when I was trying to do kind of Instagram posts or whatever to promote the book, I couldn't recreate anything like those photos, anything like that aesthetic in the kitchens I was in, because there's just not the light and there's not the space and, and stuff like that. And you kind of realize there's a bit of dissonance between the message that the book is is sending out and, and the realities of how it was made and how it will probably look like for readers as well. Yeah, so even you can't live up to your own like aspirational image that's it (laughs) it's really striking to me how ruby's writing consciously makes room for all kinds of kitchens she actively addresses that her readers may not have sole claim to their own pristine perfectly configured kitchens shove your flatmates dirty dishes to the corner of the kitchen so that you can sit and enjoy your spaghetti hoops in blissful uncluttered calm she writes in eat up And it's clear that she's writing from personal experience. I went on Bake Off like many years ago now and I was doing all the prep for that in in like my bedroom in this, in honestly the most disgusting kind of rented room in Kilburn in North London and honestly it was disgusting and the kitchen was like tiny and there were so many mice so I would do all the prep on this table in my bedroom. I'd like knead dough and... I don't know, I'd made it, even made phyllo pastry, which was quite extraordinary under the circumstances. When renting is acknowledged in cookbooks, it's often portrayed as a temporary situation, like in those many student cookbooks you can get. Something to wait out while you rack up the deposit for your first real home. But with so many people now expected to be locked out of home ownership for good, one in three millennials, according to a 2018 report by the Resolution Foundation... This seems like an exclusionary approach. I was always very aware of like the limitations of the, the kitchens that we can end up in by chance, sometimes by bad luck as well. So I kind of was very aware of that. And that just naturally kind of inserted boundaries onto what kinds of things I could cook, how I could cook them, how easy it was to source things and to make things work and to store them as well. So I was very aware of those boundaries. And when you have the boundaries, sometimes obviously that's a nice thing because you can be creative within them. And it also made me really aware that, you know, if I was making a recipe, say, that required a food processor or something like that's not something that I've had for most of the last, what, 10 years or so, because (laughs) it takes up so much space. So it's definitely something I've always been aware of. I think less so at the start and and kind of more so as I've grown into my I guess my style of recipe writing and and the the interests I have within it. I think there's an added importance in Ruby writing like this given that her readership is really young and obviously people can get all sorts out of and enjoy food writing that doesn't relate to their personal circumstances at all. But it seems surprising that there isn't more food writing that actively acknowledges the living situations of younger generations in rented homes. Do you know what? It's funny you mentioned that because it's something that I only realised like literally last week because I was having to have... Really? Yeah, I had to have some meetings with people and they were like, who do you think reads your books? And I was like, do you know what? Actually, it's people younger than me and it's the first time I'd ever realised it. It was completely new to me. <laughs> That's so funny, yeah. What was it that made it click for you? Uh, it was just being asked. It was being asked in that straightforward way and it suddenly clicked and 
it was it was really actually lovely because I always carry around this real embarrassment, like, oh, my writing's not very, it's not very clever and the recipes aren't very, you know, innovative and they're not like proper foodie recipes and stuff like that. And I always feel a bit embarrassed about that. And then I remember, like, wait a minute, I'm not meant to be writing those things. That's not who I'm writing for. It's actually fine. So that was actually a relief, I'm pleased to say. Wow. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> quite a that's quite a weight to carry around as well though. Like and what do you think it what do you think it is that's made you feel like that? Um, to be honest, I think it's it's kind of situational, you know, as as a food writer, I kind of, you know, the people that I follow online and that I respect the work of and engage with are people who are really, really into food. So, you know, the recipes that they talk about and that they they try from cookbooks are going to be the clever ones and the more involved ones. And, you know, that's great. But I, I kind of need to remember that I'm not really writing for other food writers I'm writing for people who might be less confident in the kitchen and yeah I think realizing that that's actually what I'm trying to do is just made everything make so much more sense yeah I should stress that it is completely wild to me and it feels really sad that Ruby feels embarrassed at times about her writing but maybe it's actually not that surprising given the class demographics of British food writing as a whole I can't help feeling that Ruby's self-conscious about writing in this younger, more inclusive way because it really stands out in the food world, which tends to centre the white middle-class experience as normative. And there's also this sense of the ideal nuclear family, and that's who's present in the kitchen. So sharing kitchens is not considered aspirational or part of the trophy kitchen dream. But it really is a reality for so many people renting their homes with all kinds of different outcomes. And this is something that Ruby often confronts in her work. There's a chapter in her book, Eat Up, which opens with her making a huge elaborate birthday cake for her university flatmate, which is perhaps unwanted, unwelcome. As a reader, we're just not quite clear what's going on here. It's some sort of power move, but we're not really sure who holds the power. Over just three pages, Ruby weaves the story of this very fraught relationship in which their shared kitchen forms the stage for the ups and downs. It's one of the most striking things I've ever read about sharing houses. So much food writing assumes the reader has ownership over the kitchen. And this highlights the exact opposite. I think what I was trying to get at with that was that it's so difficult to communicate with people that you live with unless they're like, well, maybe even especially if they're your family, but, you know, especially if they're people that you're sharing with at uni or something like that, or people you've been thrown into on a flat sharing website or whatever, it's difficult. And I think it was about how that communication ends up going around. Like, it's never to the point. It's always like you're going to communicate through some other means of a certain control or whatever. So and I think for, for me and her, it was a lot about food. And uh, I can see what a pain I was like from from my side of things like why did I bake her a huge birthday cake that she didn't ask for and I think maybe she even actively didn't want in order to try and like force some kind of intimacy like that was my fucked up behavior and then she kind of asserted her own control in different ways as well but I mean it just it's all about power struggles isn't it and and kind of wanting closeness with people and also you know, when you're at such close quarters, wanting to distance yourself from people because it feels so suffocating as well. So, Yeah, completely. I think it really kind of spoke to me because of the experiences that I've had in flat shares. And like, I've always felt 
like I didn't really want to take up space in the kitchen like it's only Mm. as I've got older and I live with my partner now that like I I, I'm happy to take up that space because like there isn't that kind of contested space where somebody else might need it and you have to negotiate like I'd kind of rather just take myself out of that yeah and I think that like that feels amongst like other sort of food people that I know like that's quite unusual like people the people that I know and whose work that I admire like I feel like they're the kind of people to cook a big meal and take control and be like yeah 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 I'll take care of this whereas I'm like I'll just get my yogurt out the fridge and like I need it in my bedroom like that's so sad Lucy the thought of you just like having a furtive yogurt it's really the saddest thing isn't it tragic (laughs) you know like speaking of uh, the dynamics of of kind of taking up space in a kitchen and stuff like that and how that impacts your cooking oh my god like since then I feel like I go through ebbs and flows like sometimes I will be the person in a flat share who is happy to be in there and I'm like oh I'm cooking something blah 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 but actually a lot of the time I am absolutely infuriatingly passive like I hate myself (laughs) for it I think other people hate me for it as well you know like I'll, I'll sneak down in the dead of night and get myself like some dinner that I've actually wanted for like 12 hours now, but I've been too scared to do it. Like I hate it about myself and I'm determined to change this about myself because that kind of like, I don't know that you, you feel, I think when you give up your, your claim to space, you feel like you're doing everyone a favor, but you're really not. It can be such a kind of backwards way of actually making everyone else feel like they're taking up too much space and like they're, doing too oh much God, so this is so true <laughs> it's fraught isn't it it is too much whenever I go into a new kind of living setup I like to get it just share straight off the bat that I am not as good at cooking as people are going to think I am like I get that out really early and I make sure I set the bar really low by having like lots of spaghetti hoops on toast and stuff for a while because I absolutely go mad if I feel like people are expecting too much of me in the kitchen I am not a chef I am like a home cook and if anything my strength is like sharing how I cook normal kind of simple home cooking dishes I am not going to amaze anyone with like my like Heston style shit like I, I have to get that out right away what what are the responses to that usually like do you know what it really infuriates me people don't believe it like people think that I'm doing like <laughs> false modesty and I'm absolutely not it <laughs> I just oh god it really winds me up it really winds me up I just want to be able to do you know what when I'm cooking for myself day to day a lot of the time I'll just roast a load of like vegetables and like paneer in the oven and I'll like make a curry with it like that's that's where my energy levels are at most of the time and if people expect me to be doing culinary fireworks they are so mistaken in culinary pleasures nicola humble writes about the difference between delia smith who she explicitly calls uninspirational and nigel slater as process versus pleasure There is little aspiration in process, but pleasure is extremely aspirational. And I love that Ruby's writing goes out of its way to find pleasure and joy in moments and situations that perhaps aren't considered traditionally aspirational. I mean, to be honest, if you've always lived in rented kitchens, you end up feeling like if you move the baking ingredients from one cupboard to another, you feel like you've really like changed world order. You know what I mean? Like 
you it doesn't take much to excite you and to feel like oh I've really claimed this space which is nice you know you set a low bar for yourself it means you can only ever be quite chuffed with what you've achieved what's been your favorite kitchen you've ever had I was thinking about this it's it's difficult I think maybe in Sheffield I was living in this one house that just it was like this tiny little terraced house and it had this little kitchen at the back that overlooked a garden and it had like a really messy lawn with loads of cat poos in the garden and I could see the washing line when I was doing the washing up and I thought this is fucking heaven I I really did feel that way I couldn't believe my luck that so that's maybe the nicest nicest kitchen of of recent years yeah and what was it about it that made it so nice I mean, in many ways, it was ghastly. Like, it was really hideous. Like, it was really... It it hadn't aged well. Like, it had, like, these weird dark wood cabinets. Not even, like... I've seen you talking about, like, the The pine. (laughs) The pine as, you know, the aesthetic of the cheap landlord today. This was, like, the cheap landlord of yesteryear's kitchen. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it was great. I, I just... I loved it. And I think it just... I felt like I was able to... I don't know, make it a space that felt like mine, even though it was rented. So, yeah, it just felt like home. Ruby's new book, Cook As You Are, comes out in October this year. Its subtitle is Recipes for Real Life, Hungry Cooks and Messy Kitchens. And instead of glossy photos shot in a beautiful, minimalist home, it features illustrations by the amazing Sinead Park. It's about not being aspirational. It's about kind of accepting the situation that you have like what kind of foods can you afford to eat what kind of foods you like to eat what are you able to prepare you know in terms of you know do you have the ability to stand for a lot of time do you have loads of patience do you have a kid to look after all of these things kind of shape the the diet that you're going to end up eating and one of those things is is the kitchen and the equipment that you have in that kitchen so that was that was central to this and yeah I, I kind of had that in mind every step of the way. Lekka is written and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks to my contributors on this episode, Professor Deborah Sugg-Ryan and Ruby Tando. There's also a print scene featuring original essays and illustrations about kitchens released alongside this audio series. Buy a copy now at leckerpodcast.com. Original music was composed for the series by Jeremy Wormsley, with additional music also by Jeremy and by Blue Dot Sessions. Research and production assistance by Nadja Medi. Additional guest research by Sarah Woolley. If you've enjoyed what you heard in this episode, or generally on Lekka, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and telling a friend about it. And if you've really enjoyed this episode or are a big fan of the podcast in general already, please do consider becoming a patron of Lekka at patreon.com forward slash Lekka podcast. I don't want to get too beggy on this, but I've made this series and funded it myself in my own time around a full-time job, and I'm really delighted to be able to do that 
and I consider myself very lucky to be in a position to be able to make it like this. But I would love to be able to release episodes more often and basically for that I needed to be able to make more money. So if that is something that you'd be in a position to do, it would be hugely, hugely appreciated. Thanks for listening to this episode of Kitchens. On the next episode... You know, someone who doesn't know us very well, if they come into the house, they would make certain assumptions based on the fact that... I mean, probably even my neighbours, the fact that they see me in the kitchen with a tea towel over my shoulder or serving dinner, I'm very aware that they will be making assumptions probably about what happens in the bedroom. And they're wrong. <laughs> I felt... I think what I felt was regret. I felt a deep sense of regret. A deep sense of, you know, I deprived myself of something for so long because of the connotations of what I thought. Like, you know, everybody needs to eat. I think it's important for everybody to learn how to cook.